So, as uh, Don said, my name is Austin Hillis, and today I've been given the privilege and responsibility to deliver the Word of God today. So let's open in prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for giving us your Word. Please help us to rightly understand it, and um, thank you that we can gather together to worship you. Help us to worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. Uh, protect me from error today and give discernment to the ears of the hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we'll be in Psalm 1. So you can grab a Bible if you brought one or grab one from a pew in front of you. So with Pastor Andrew on sabbatical, he asked if I wanted to preach. I said, sure. He said, great. Well, I've asked everyone else. There's one spot to fill. You can have it. So I thought, well, thanks. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the date that he proposed didn't end up working with my schedule. So one of the other guys uh, switched with me kindly. And it ended up being, you get to preach the first one of the series. Thought, oh, good. Uh, that serves me right for being a prideful scoffer and complaining. And then he assigned me Psalm 1 as my passage. And I had to repent of my scoffing. So, in today's passage, there are a few key things that we'll be focusing on. Uh, to give you an idea of where we're going, uh, the main points are, believers in Jesus are blessed, meditate on the law of the Lord, be fruitful, have nothing to do with the ways of the wicked, and the Lord knows your path and cares. So let's read Psalm 1 together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. So as we're starting out a new series here, we'll need to lay a bit of historical settings so that we can understand things such as who's the author, who's he writing to, what's the original intent of the message, and how does it apply to us. When reading Psalm 1 in the past, I thought, well, here's a reference for farmers. I don't really get it. It doesn't really apply to me. Because if you know me, you might know that I was a commercial fisherman growing up on the coast. So when I read the gospel, I like the fishing, fishing analogies that Jesus uses because they're most relatable to me. So then I get to a passage like this about trees and chaff, and I think, what? Oh, well, I guess it doesn't apply to me. And then Andrew assigned this to me, and I had to actually study it to realize that there's an uncomfortable amount of things that do apply. So God does that all the time. He'll make his word relatable to different people. If you don't understand it one way, then the Bible describes it a different way. So maybe there's not a lot of plumbing or electrician analogies uh, in the Bible, but the authors will use the common trades of the time and um, often relate that as analogies to spiritual matters. So maybe you don't plant trees or have a vineyard. Maybe you're a grain farmer or a stonemason, a shepherd, carpenter. 
And the wonderful, wonderful and personal God that we serve has given us the scriptures. And to rightly understand them, we need to put a bit of work in. So another reason I want to lay some historical groundwork, which might start off a bit dry here, is because Psalms is a book that can be frequently misused or used out of context. So I'll give you an example. Psalm 46.5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Number one women's empowerment verse. And I'm not specifically picking on women, but I looked up the most misused psalm and this is what came up. So this verse will get taken and a woman might say, well, this applies to me. Great, let's put it on a mug, put it on a t-shirt, take it out of context, sell a product. But let's read the surrounding passages, the whole chapter if you get a chance, but even just right now we'll read Psalm 46 verses four through seven. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So when it says her, it's not specifically talking about a woman, but it's the holy habitation where God dwells. This is referring to the people of God. Israel need not fear because God is in control and he is among them. So yes, it's an encouraging passage. God is our fortress, but it's not targeting women as the audience. Its aim is to show the glory and greatness of God. And we need to be very careful when we read scripture that we read out of it and not read into it. With that in mind, let's look at a bit of history. So the word from which we get psalms means the plucking of strings. It was Israel's hymn book, which was inspired by God. And if understood correctly, it shows how to properly worship God in spirit and in truth. The psalms are made up of the writings of more than seven authors over a 900-year period, dating from Psalm 90, which was written by Moses in 1410 BC, to Psalm 126, which was written in the 5th or 6th century BC. Some of the composers of the Psalms are King David, the sons of Korah, Asaph, Solomon, Moses, Heman, Ethan, and 50 of the Psalms are anonymous. But ultimately, the author is the Holy Spirit. So there's a couple basic underlying themes in the Psalms. One shows the history of God working and acting in creation, such passages as Psalm 102.25, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This shows how God created all things and governs and upholds them by his will. The second setting of the Psalms is a history of Israel. Spanning a period of over 900 years, there's quite a lot of historic events that take place. Um, about Israel's kings, people, victories, and God working through all of it. This is a history that shows us who God is and deals with the joys and pains of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in these chapters, we're commanded to know the word of God and teach it to our children. This book shows good theology through day-to-day -day life of the sinful people like us. And it shows us truths like man's sinfulness, which is not only shown through the acts of the wicked, but also through the stumbling of the righteous. You think King David, he was counted righteous, but he stumbled and did some bad things too. God's sovereignty is acknowledged, but not at the expense of human responsibility. 
where we see that God is governing all things, but people are still responsible for their own actions and will either reap the reward or bear the consequences of those actions. So sometimes things might seem like they're all chaos, but God's plans are still being accomplished, and that should bring us great comfort. So there's a few different types or genres of psalms. One is a wisdom psalm, which instructs in right living according to God's commands. Another is lamentations, talking about the hardships of life. There's penitential, which means dealing with the enemy of sin within, and how the, the spirit and the flesh are always warring against each other, like Paul talks about when he says, For I do not do what I want, but I do everything that I hate. There's kingship emphasis, talking about the rule of the earthly king and of the Messiah to come. And there's songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Of these genres, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm and instructs in God's will. So verse 1, believers are blessed. Blessed is the man. As followers of Jesus, we're blessed. And we should have joy and happiness that we can have a personal relationship with our Creator and God. Now, why are we blessed and what does it mean? We're blessed not because we deserve it. It's the grace of God through faith in Jesus that we can be declared righteous. Lost my spot. So we can be declared righteous and live blessed lives. But without him, we're sinners under God's condemnation. Blessedness is not just happiness, because we're going to go through some hard times, and things might get miserable, but we still belong to God, and we are still blessed. So we'll talk a little bit more further on about what that blessedness means, but um, continuing with the text. Uh, in English poetry, uh, poems usually based on rhythm or rhyme, but in Hebrew poetry, it's based on logical parallels. There are different kinds, but one is called synonymous parallelism. And this is where the author takes the thought in the first line and then restates it in the next line in a slightly different way. So the same point's being made, but just rephrased a little differently to show it from a slightly different perspective. And we see that here where it says to not walk, stand, or sit in the ways of this, the wicked sinners and scoffers. This is a form of poetry that encapsulates all the different ways of the wicked, and they're all synonyms which amount to the same thing, and all in different positions, and this is meant to show the whole scope, that there are no loopholes in following God, have nothing to do with any of this wicked behavior. And in fact, it's not just that we can't do these wicked schemes and behavior, but we're actually guilty if we approve of it. The word says in Romans 1.32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So not only the perpetrators are guilty, but also the approvers. So if I'm driving along and I see a big truck with the big Trudeau sticker on the back, one that's not very complimentary, and I think, well, that's a bit crass, I wouldn't put that on my vehicle, and then I honk the horn and give the guy a thumbs up on the way by. I'm not, I'm guilty. I am guilty. <laughs> I'm an approver of profanity and dishonor of the authorities. 
and regardless of my political positions, I am ultimately answerable to God for my actions. So it has have nothing to do with their ways. So the wicked are those guilty of sin against man and God, those hostile towards God. Colossians 1.21, it talks about how we're alienated and hostile towards God in our natural state. We're all criminals that will be punished unless the blessedness of salvation through Christ is bestowed on us. Sinners is another synonym, which means the same sort of thing as the wicked. A sinner is defined as one reckoned as an offender and exposed to condemnation. The scornful or the scoffer, depending on your translation. Um, so I'm a visual learner. I visualize things, and when I think of a passage like this, I picture a seat, the scoffer's seat. And my scoffer seats at the dinner table. And so what's scoffing and scorn? It's contempt and disrespect. And when I sit at my scoffer's seat at the end of the day and I spew scorn about the stupid people and can you believe the nerve of so-and-so or what a fool this other guy is or basically how, how wicked everyone is but me. And then I read this passage and I see that the way I'm behaving is the very thing that this passage is condemning. So far we've seen some of the characteristics of the wicked and all the things that the righteous man should not be. And now it's contrasted by the life of the righteous and what that should look like. So I have nothing to do with the ways of the wicked. So this can be a hard one to get right and as I've been studying this, initially I had this section titled, Disassociate from Sinners. And that didn't quite sound right. Partly because we're all sinners, so that won't work. And partly because we're actually called to minister to sinners and bring the gospel to them. As I reread the passage, I found that when it talks about the wicked and the scornful sinner, it's not telling us to be in that, it, it's telling us to not be in that position. Don't sit in that scoffer's chair and have contempt for others. Don't walk in the same paths as the wicked and don't take their counsel. Have nothing to do with their ways. So how are we to disciple people? And who should we disassociate from? And we'll see instruction to this question in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul was addressing sexual immorality in the church. And in verse 2 he says, Let him who has done this thing, done this be removed from among you. And this is in regards to church discipline. Pastor Andrew preached on this in a sermon in Corinthians a couple months ago that those in the church who unrepentantly walk, sit, and stand in the ways of the wicked are to be corrected. And if they do not repent, they are to be put out of the church and treated as unbelievers. They are not to be treated as part of the flock, and we need to protect our fellow believers from them and their wicked ways. Immoral people like these that are in the church are either ignorant to God's commands or disobedient to them, and in either situation the problem needs to be dealt with swiftly and with love. And they're not to be put out of the church in order to excommunicate them forever, but in hopes that it'll be a wake-up call and that they'll turn from their sin and come back to the body. So now as we talk about this and about having nothing to do with the ways of the wicked, there's a danger here that we can tend towards. It's a misunderstanding of scripture that the Corinthians fell into and that we've been falling into ever since. So Paul has to clarify because the church wasn't really listening. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, 
or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So the Corinthians were sticking to themselves, disassociating from everyone outside of the church. And Paul was talking about disciplining people in the church. So this doesn't mean that we disconnect from the world. We don't start a commune or... Uh, we are to live in the world, but not of it. Paul's not telling us here to treat the church as a little zone that we have to stay in. R.C. Sproul talked about how the Western church has become like a reservation that we're assigned, where the world says, okay, you can do your religious stuff in there, but we don't want to hear about it. And he said, once, this, once you step outside of that reservation, bringing the truth you watch how fast the hammer of persecution drops. And I think we got just a tiny glimpse of that the last couple of years when we were having services in the parking lot. Um, once we went outside the building, not even leaving the own property, people came, the police were called, and some of the public were outraged. We're not meant to say, we'll stay here and be holy, and then say to the masses and to the government, you do you, and uh, watch the world crumble around us. Because that's been tried, and the state of society is not flourishing because of it. So we look at the ways of the wicked, and we say, no, nope, that's wrong. Here's a better way. And we bring gospel. Because without it, we're not blessed either. We're the same as the world, children of wrath. So here's what we're to do. We delight in the law of the Lord. And Jesus tells us a really simple way to do that. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if we didn't read to the end of that passage, you can, it can sound kind of flowery and impractical, just sort of a spiritual thing. Just love everyone. But when you see that it says the whole law hangs on these two commandments, then suddenly there's a lot of practical things you can do. To love God is not just to have a nice feeling about him, but it's to obey and delight in his law. So then the next part of delighting in the law of the Lord is loving those around us. And again, we have to be careful here because we have a lot of bad pre-understandings about what love is. We can tend to think, when we think of love, that the word nice and love are the synonymous, are synonymous, but they're not. And they don't mean the same thing. So I'll give you an example. We have the idea that to love someone, we need to be nice. And Vodi Bauckham jokes about the 11th commandment that people follow, thou shalt be nice. So I was talking with a person about abortion and that it's wrong to do so and that to do it is murder. And that's not a very nice thing to say. And yet killing an image bearer of God is murder. And if you say that 
well, we just have to walk with these people and love and accept them and be nice without daring to offend, then you don't really love them. We need to teach a lost world these truths. And if you truly delight in the law of the Lord, teach it to the world. Teach it to your children. As you raise and lovingly discipline them. The Bible teaches that if you don't discipline your children, then you're not really being loving towards them at all. Teach people the truth that you love them, even if it's painful. Meditate on the law day and night. Immediately I read this and I think, well, now how do we do that? Always be reading day and night and never think about anything else but the Bible. It's not what it means, but in the times that this was written, the Word of God wasn't at people's disposal like it is today. So they didn't have a bunch of different translations lined up on the shelf. People were told the Word of God and they had to memorize and ponder it, to meditate on it. So as we do this, it should change our hearts so that we're not hearers only, but also doers of the Word. Which we'll talk about in a little while, but not to be always sitting at a desk studying day and night, but through our thought, sorry, through our days reflecting on the truths of the word. And it must be from the word of God and not just high-minded spiritual thought. Because the wicked can do that too. We're not told to, well, when we're told to meditate, it doesn't mean sitting cross-legged humming. Not that kind of meditation that comes from Eastern mysticism, which is about emptying yourself, emptying your mind, and looking within for enlightenment and satisfaction. All through scripture, we'll, we're told to do the opposite of that. We're told not to lean on our own understanding or be emptied to find answers, but be filled with the word of God. Let God's word inform our actions and decisions and understanding so that we see things from a true perspective rather than from the perspective of the world. As it says in Proverbs 3, 1-6, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Verse 3, a tree planted by the streams. I've always overlooked this when it says planted. It doesn't just say growing, but it says planted. This shows human intervention on the part of the tree to make it fruitful. If a tree begins to grow in rocky or sandy terrain, it may do well for a while, but when the sun comes out, things are going to dry up and it's going to wither away. So a farmer or whoever deals with trees um, has to transplant it by irrigation canals that were made just for that purpose in the times. So like a tree doesn't transplant itself near a canal, neither do sinners transplant themselves in the kingdom. It's grace. God draws us from a path that leads to death and destruction where we would wither and die. And he grafts us into his family and he feeds us with the nourishing word of life and saves us by his son and not by anything that we deserve. 
And yet we have the responsibility to turn from sin and be fruitful. So what then happens to the tree now that it's been planted by the stream? It can't just sit there lapping up the water and never bear fruit. If it does, the farmer's going to come cut it down and cast it into the fire. It may take some time to see, but ultimately it will be evident if it's a fruit-bearing tree or not. So this is referring to us. We have known the truth. We've been given the word of life. And now we have the responsibility not to earn this gift, but to act in faith and grow and be fruitful. And there should be growth in our lives in the right season. It'll look different for different people. So don't be discouraged if you're in a time that feels like a dry spell or a hard or busy season. If it's hard to gauge your spiritual growth. I know there are a lot of young families here, which I'm one. Maybe you have small kids and you feel like you're not being fruitful enough or you feel you're just trying to survive right now. But don't forget that your job is to raise those kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I heard a guy say, yeah, I believe that signs and miracles exist. The biggest miracle that happens in my day is that I don't lose it on my kids. I said, well, praise God, man. You're growing in the likeness of Christ. But if you're no further along in your faith now than you were years ago, and there's no one to say, I see change in you that's in accordance with God's word, then be concerned. The word says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so if you're like me, at times you've been trembling, maybe I'm not saved, maybe I'm not doing well enough, then be excited because that probably means the Spirit's working in you. Someone who's not truly of the faith won't actually care if they're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. To them, the ways of God are foolishness. There's no standard amount of goodness that you have to do to be saved. The standard of perfection is Jesus. So if you've put your faith in him, then rest in the fact that God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now act in faith and obey his commands. Whatever he does prospers. This is not talking about wealth or money. It may be part of God's plan for your life, but this is not endorsing a prosperity gospel. If you read this one and say, yep, this one's for me, and I just have to meditate on the law, and then I'll be rich, then that's in contradiction to the rest of the Bible. Think about all the people who've loved God through Scripture that have had this promise. A lot of them weren't very physically well off at all. They were persecuted, beaten, poor, killed, and yet their lives were prosperous in that they were used to serve God and live faithfully for Him. One commentator described the life of the prosperous man like this. All his actions being directed by the word, providence and grace of God shall be crowned with success in one respect or another. For even disappointments, losses and afflictions shall work for his good and with a blessed effect or end. And that's the Benson commentary. It is not wrong to do well or to have nice things, but a truly prosperous person is one who loves and glorifies God through what he does and what he has. Let's not forget that all we have belongs to God. And that realization should humble us to know that we're not self-sufficient for anything, but fully dependent on God for everything. 
Verse 4, the chaff. So we come to what's called in Hebrew poetry an antithetic parallel. That's a fancy word which means the author is making a point and then contrasting two different things. The first idea is contrasted by the polar opposite in the second idea. So for example, this passage, we have the flourishing fruitful tree contrasted by the chaff. And to understand this chaff analogy in its fullness, I had to look up some things about farming in ancient times. Uh, here's what I think I learned um, about the chaff, but if I'm wrong about the process, then there's lots of farmers here to straighten me out, so I'm sorry. Um, after the stalks of grass were cut down with the grain head still attached using a scythe or a sickle, they'd be gathered up to a threshing floor. And some different methods could be used to beat the useful grain from the grass and the seed shells and all the garbage, which was called chaff. So sometimes an ox or donkeys would be tied to a post in the middle of the threshing floor and walk around treading all the grain off. Or a flail would be used for smaller jobs and kind of looked like nunchucks with one handle longer than the other. I guess they'd swing it around and hit the grass. And uh, so once it was all threshed, it would need to be separated where a winnow the winnowing would happen. And a winnowing fork or fan, kind of like a pitchfork, would be used and it would toss the stuff up into the air and the useful grain would fall down and then the breeze would carry the rest away. Now it's done with high production farm equipment and I can't tell you how that works. The picture of the chaff shows the swift, uh, how swift God's judgment will be on the wicked. And for a more full description, it's given in Matthew 3.12. His winnowing fork is his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So the fruitful righteous will be gathered up to him and the wicked will burn. In verse 5, the word therefore, we see this chapter wrapping up to a conclusion. So with all this in mind, the wicked will not be approved by God, but be struck by his judgment and unable to rise. To add a bit of imagery, Isaiah 2, 12-21. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter caves of rocks and holes in the ground but from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. God's to be feared. And depending whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, that means one of two things. For believers, it means that we have a loving and reverent fear and awe of God. Not to over-personalize him, to, as we tend to do in this culture, to make him our own personal God and daddy, but he is a loving and personal father, absolutely. But he's also the ruler of the universe and the judge of the wicked, which should give us a healthy fear of him. And then we don't need to fear anything else because he is above all. But for the unbeliever, it's a very different story. For them, it is the terror of the Lord and his judgment. At times it may seem to us as though the wicked are not being judged as they live in flagrant sin and blaspheme the name of God. But they're storing up for themselves wrath while we're to be storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. God is long-suffering, 
He is patient and he is merciful, but that should not be taken as inactivity or approval of evil deeds. He is merciful and he is also just. He will deal swiftly and justly with the chaff. Verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. So far this passage has been talking about the individual past. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. And now it broadens to a more corporate application. The word used for assembly or congregation um, of the righteous is a group of God's people. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. As believers, we are justified by grace through faith in Christ. As believers, we will, we will all have to give an account of ourselves to Christ. And while we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we still have to answer for every thought and deed, and we will be rewarded accordingly. The news is not so good for the wicked, because they rejected Christ, the only mediator between God and man, they will be exposed to God's just punishment of sin. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way. This is not just factual knowledge. He knows where you're going. But it's a personal and loving relationship with cares and concerns. He watches over the cares. He, sorry, he watches over and cares for his flock and will reward them. To know here is the same word used in the intimate relationship between a husband and wife. We're in a covenantal relationship with Jesus and he knows us. And we can be sure of his righteous judgment because, because of this we can be sure of the outcome for the wicked and for the righteous. Because God watches over the affairs of men. So in saying all this, the goal is not to scare you into doing good works because that will gain you nothing. Jesus paid the price for sin once and it was fully sufficient and there is nothing that we can do to earn it we need to hear this to know how awesome and powerful and just God is. That the wicked will not be approved, but by his grace we are his. He grants us the gift of repentance so that we can believe and turn from our sin. He gathers us up and helps us to bear fruit. And we are blessed because of the blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So rejoice in his unsearchable mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this precious word. Thank you that as believers, we are blessed. Thank you for your grace in saving us. Help us to spend time in the word, to meditate on it. Please help us to bear fruit by your spirit and delight in glorifying in you. Thank you that you are the just judge, that you know our paths and you care. Thank you that you're not a distant God, but a caring one. Please be with each one as they go out from here today. Help us to meditate on this word through the week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.